Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at Parshat Toldot. We're kind of zipping through the Genesis narratives uh, because we missed uh, Friday and we're like way far in um, already to the stories of Genesis. Um, fully uh, a quarter of the book is the Joseph novella. Um, so we will begin that soon um, because we are at the generation uh, of Jacob. Now we're beginning the stories of Jacob now in Toldos. So we are at the stories of Toldot. We are at the stories of the generation of Yaakov and Esav. Um, Genesis is filled with stories of brothers. But all of these stories of brothers, when we bless on Friday night, may God make you like, what do we say for boys? Yesim ha'adonai ke Ephraim v'menasheh. To boys, we say, may God make you like uh, Ephraim v'menasheh. The rabbis say, why, why was that chosen? Um, as the pair, because we have for girls, may God make you like Yesimech, Adonai Ke, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, the four matriarchs. Why doesn't it say to the boys, may God make you like Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov? And so one of the explanations is because Ephraim and Manasseh are brothers, and it's the first set of brothers in the book of Genesis that get along. <laughs> Every Everyone to Ephraim and Manasseh, and Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's. Right. So that that from from Cain and Hevel, from Cain and Abel. Right. What happened there was not right between those brothers. Fratricide. Right. Never something you want in your family. So um, we go from fratricide, you know, all the way through the Genesis narratives to Ephraim and Menashe, the first two to actually have a relationship and get along. Thinking that maybe it's because they're only half Jewish. Who? The guys. <laughs> the guys are only half Jewish. Um, okay, so we got to get clear here. Um, Rebecca is pregnant with twins by Isaac. Asaph and Jacob are twins. They are both from the same parents. You said that these fellows were Joseph's children. Yes. So... Um, we also have Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is the child of Hagar, who's an Egyptian. So we have already a story of brothers who don't get along. So it was a good, it was a good hypothesis. Um, you gotta test hypotheses. So let's test it. Could it be that they were old, they were half Egyptian and half Hebrew? Uh, since Ishmael and, right? And Yitzchak, he's also, Ishmael's also half Egyptian from Hagar. It was a good try, though. Okay. So, and remember, Jewish is an anachronism. It's an anachronism. There are no Jews in Genesis. There's no Jews. There's only Israelites. There are Israelites and non-Israelites. And remember, it doesn't seem to be a problem at all that Egyptian women give birth to Israelite children Right. That that is not the issue. The issue is not that they're not fully Israelite. Being Israelite went by the father. It was not a problem. Right. When did that change? Right. So so the status of Israelite never changed to mother. 
when the second temple was destroyed, you were still an Israelite if your father was Israelite. What changed was the conferring of the status of Jewish. Once there is Judaism as a religion, now who's who's considered fully Jewish and who's not Jewish? And because of rape as a tool of war, the rabbis out of kindness to women went had Judaism go by the mother. So women who were raped as part of war, their child was considered fully part of the Jewish community as long as the mother was Jewish, so that you didn't have to worry about who was the father. Because if you were not fully Jewish, it's not, I mean, it's a real, it's a real thing. Right. Because if you're not fully Jewish, you can't marry within the Jewish community. Right. So a woman who gave birth to a child because she was raped by a Cossack, and, and people knew that, they, and they questioned whether or not it was her husband or the Cossack, that child could have been a mamzer, and that child would not have been allowed to marry within the Jewish community, which means their life is over within the Jewish community, because they're not going to marry within the non-Jewish community, because by then, they kids consider Jewish. Mm-hmm. So so people think it's what it's not. It was, an, it was an act of compassion by the rabbis, so that it was clear that if the woman is Jewish, her child was considered fully Jewish. When did that take place, that change? Not sure. I've been asked this several times, and I have an answer, and then I forget it. Moses didn't marry a Jew. Because he's not about Judaism, right? It's a, he's Israelite. And so his children were Israelite by virtue of the fact that he's he Israelite. Jim? Wow. Do you have any idea about when that changed? I don't. I don't. It would be Talmudic times. It would be after the destruction of the Second Temple. Yeah, it was after the destruction of the Second Temple. In the year 70. Right. You said a word, mun- Munzer? Mm-hmm. That's a what, Hebrew for the non-Jew. Bastard. Well, Mamzer is bastard. Oh. Wow. And I've known that word since childhood. Yeah. <laughs> right? My, as in not legitimate. My, no, as in my father would leave someplace and go, Mamzerim. <laughs> Mamzerim. Right? And my mother would elbow him and say, Howard. The kinder law. That's Yiddish and Hebrew? Both the same word. Yep. Amy, are you saying that that's the only reason why Judaism is, runs matriarchally? Only reason? But can you tell me another one? I don't know. I mean, but that's there a isn't. big thing because we are different than Christians that way. I mean, it runs through the mother. Only rape. Well, well, certainty of maternity. Yeah, Let me yeah. put it that way. Right. All you can be certain about is maternity. Yeah. So it was to protect women from their child having full status within the community. What if there's a rumor that she's had an affair? Mm-hmm. Um, Wouldn't other ancient civilizations have the same rule for the same reason? It's interesting that we... One could ask, did they care about women and the protection of their children's well, status? they care about the bloodline of their own people. <laughs> but that went through the men for them. Yeah. So, so they had to be sure of paternity, not maternity. Matriarchal culture. I mean, maternity is obvious. It can't be questioned. Unless you're talking about adoption, which we see a lot in the Genesis narratives, right? Sarah adopts and then rejects Ishmael. Right? Um, Yaakov, ado- uh, uh, the kids of the concubines, of the handmaidens, are adopted. Right. As heirs, as legitimate sons. 
right? So adoption is a big part of the picture. So that can be done and undone. But but birthing a child, the maternity is not questionable. So that is why we have anthropologically so many things about locking women up and putting chastity belts on them and cover your hair and everything else. It's because men are nervous about paternity. So you better control her sexuality and access to her. Anthropologically, we know this, right? That it's all about men want to make sure it's their offspring, their bloodline. If you're a matrilineal culture, you're, you don't really care necessarily who the father is. In matrilineal and matrilocal cultures, you often took a new husband every time you were ready to get pregnant again. You nursed until the baby was three or four and got permanent teeth. And then you, so that was birth control. And then you, you, when you were ready to have another child, you picked another guy. Because it didn't really matter. It went through the mother and the mother's line. Once you have patriarchy, now you better do something about your women to control access, to be sure that it's your offspring as a male, because you can never be sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where is the aspect of when uh, Ishmael is adopted? I've never seen, seen anything in my reading. It says he was um, their son. Is there any comment on adoption? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's outside the Torah literature. Which is inferred. Yes. Yes. That because there was, she had no heir, Ishmael would have been Abraham's heir because Abraham recognizes Ishmael as his son, as a legitimate son. Um, and in the ancient world, that would have meant the first wife would have to approve that. All right. And, and we did a whole bunch of stuff on Sarai, if you'll recall from, um, uh, Tuval's work, Sabina Tuval, her work on Sarai as a priestess. That originally in Mesopotamia, probably the Sarai narratives come from Sarai having been a uh, priestess. Are we good? All of that was intro. (laughs) I know, right? Intro. All that was intro. All right. So I wanted I want to look at our text, and then I want to talk a little more about these narratives in terms of these are not just stories about the foundational characters associated with the formation of the Israelite people. Most likely, these were always stories about the peoples that descend from characters who are imagined as ancestors. Does that make sense? So we have, we have 12 confederated tribes who write a story, once those tribes want to be in some kind of relationship to each other, they write and tell stories about their ancestors, in air quotes, for those of you listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. right? Their ancestors. They, there were not 12 brothers who, who then had kids, and those kids became tribes. That is not what happened. It goes the other way. 12 tribes who become some kind of a confederation start to tell a story about why they're related. That's because their great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers were brothers. And they share an ancestor, Yaakov. Yes? These are mythic tales that come to explain the origins to reinforce relationships that are actually happening on the ground. Okay? The descendants of Esau become 
the Edomites. The descendants of Yitzchak become Yisrael. So two peoples, but that have some kind of memory of shared relationship. And so they tell these stories, right? And so these stories have always been about peoples as well as the characters that they're, that we're seeing in the actual story. So I want us to look at the story of Rivka through that lens. So I want us to look through the Rebecca narratives and Isaac narratives through that lens because they were always looked at that way. But it also, for me, resonates with what's happening right now um, in the Middle East. And I just, as you know, right now, I, I'm not able to teach Torah with what I'll kind of orientate us to to what's going on in the world. Because it's always been what's gone on in that part of the world. Always. Remember that the Middle East, um, Israel is dependent on rain. Many parts of the Middle East are dependent on rain for agriculture and for flocks. So it has always been the case that when there's drought, for several years in a row, you have social unrest and you have competition for fertile land. So there's always been war, always in the ancient Near East. Um, there were always battles. There were always skirmishes. There were always wars. The, 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 um, book, book, the borders, the boundaries that we get in Torah about where Israel starts and where it stops changes throughout the Torah because there are always battles happening where the Philistines win and then they take this part and then, right, someone else wins and they take this part. So at some point we were across the Jordan River, two tribes, but that's that wasn't the case at some point, right? So so that's um, the Jordan River becomes a, a boundary of Israel at some point. So those boundaries and borders have always moved because there has always been battles over territory in that region. Always. Let's look at, so, so this is one such memory, mythic memory, if you will, um, on the origin of peoples in that region. And it's from the beginning of um, Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Yitzhak ben Avraham. So right away, the rabbis have a question. These are the generations of Yitzhak, son of Avraham. What does it say next? Avraham, the holy, at Yitzhak. Avraham begat Yitzhak. Doesn't that look like Department of Redundancy Department? Torah never repeats itself for no reason. It's written very tersely and very, very purposefully. So, any any guesses? These are the generations of Yitzchak, son of Avraham. Avraham begat Yitzchak. I'll give you a hint. It's, our previous conversation has something to do with one of the rabbinic interpretations. That Avraham was, in fact, his father. <laughs> Gold star to Bert Kleinman. <laughs> These are the generations of Yitzchak, social son of Avraham. Let's be clear, however, Abraham begat Yitzchak. He is of his seed. He is not just his social son. He is his biological son. Why might there be a question about that? Well, if his wife had Yitzchak with another father. And who might that be? <laughs> Testing Torah knowledge now. 
Avimelech. Avimelech, another gold star. Bing, ding, ding, ding for Bert. Sarai was taken into the palace of Avimelech because they lied and said she was Abraham's sister. Because she was so beautiful that Abraham was afraid they'd kill him and take her. So this was a way that she could get taken without him getting killed. So she is taken into the harem of King Avimelech. Okay? So the Midrash says there might have been some concern that people thought, given Avraham's age, <laughs> that Avimelech was the father of Yitzchak. And so the Torah is very clear to tell us Yitzchak is his son. Yes, he acknowledged him as his son, but he begat him. It is the son of his body. And you're saying there was not a man named Abraham in walked the earth. In, 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 in what we would call reality. Correct. That CNN could have taken a picture of. Correct. Correct. Because that's not what matters. That's not what this is about. That's not what this is about, right? All right. So, and Yitzchak was 40 years old when he acquired Rivka, daughter of Betuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, mm-hmm. um, sister of Lavan, the Aramean, for himself as a wife. Yitzchak entreated Yudhe on behalf of his wife, for she was Akara, barren. And Yudhe right, grants this for him, Vatahar Rivka Ishto, and uh, Rivka, his wife, became pregnant. She conceived. So all of a sudden we get this weird thing. She gets pregnant and then we're told the children within her, in her midst, we're not sure, I'm not sure exactly how to translate that, but it's some kind of struggling going on. And she says, if so, why this me? And she goes to inquire of Yudhe Now, I spent an entire shiur on this one year when we were studying Sabina Tuval. Um, that, but we're not going to do it today. Um, so the, the, we're going to spend some time on the, on the sons. So the, there, something's going on inside of her belly with these, these children. So it's clear she has two in there. She's having twins. There's lots of midrash and we'll look at one of them about what this means. But, but to go to the enigmatic thing, she, she says, if so, why this me? We don't know exactly what that means. It could have been formulaic. It could have been ritual. It could have been something that she goes to, in, uh, to, to she uses as part of going to inquire of an augury. Why do I deserve this? Why do I deserve this? Or what is this going to mean for me? Well, is she afraid she's dying? Is she afraid women died in childbirth all the time? So if something's already wrong, right? You, you can imagine she's maybe, Thinking, what is that going to mean for me? Like, am I going to survive this? What does it mean for me? This doesn't bode well, right? Possibly she's in agony, right? If you figure, let's say she's heavily pregnant with twins and they are 
moving around right in there a lot. I can imagine. I know with one, I felt like a barca lounger, right? When she would stretch out, I was like, Ben, 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 please. Wait, could you, you know, it's not fun when someone inside you, right, is pushing against you from the inside. Now imagine two of them. Right, so she maybe she's in a lot of pain. Wasn't miscarriage relatively common? I do not know. Um, yeah. All right, so whatever reason, she there's this weird thing she says. Vatelech at She goes to inquire of Yotei Buffet. So somehow Rivka has her own relationship with Yotei Buffet. Right, so this is when we study Tuval. Rivka is a priestess. In the Mesopotamian world, she inherited the priestesshood from her family. She's from Mesopotamia, remember? Remember? She, we just heard. She's from Padan Aram. She's from Mesopotamia. She moved here to Canaan, right, to be with Abraham's family. But these are the only people who are not following pagan, Canaanite, or Mesopotamian religion at this point. Only Abraham, right? There are no other Israel, there are no Israelites yet. So she would have been steeped in Mesopotamian religion and she's going to inquire of Yodhe Buffet. Maybe she changes the name of her God to Yodhe Buffet because that's what it, God is called here. Doesn't matter. Um, but she has her own ability to do that. Does the going imply physically going somewhere? It's interesting. Some, some people want to say yes, she goes to a cultic site and she does whatever she knows how to do. To inquire of Yotei Buffet. It doesn't say she goes to a priest, because there are no priests. There's no Mishkan, right? Levon is related to Abraham, that family, right? Who? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So, Yotei Buffet, Vayomer Yotei Buffet La, God says to her, so God speaks to, so whatever she does, it works. She has the right phone number. Right? Because she gets a direct response from Yudhei Buffet. So if I yoga Yudhei Buffet la, God, Yudhei Buffet says to her, We have a kriktiv here. Look in your book and you will see that you have a kriktiv. You have one thing written, but when we read Torah, we read something different than what's written. What you have written should be, is probably Gimel, Gimel Yud Yud Mem. Yes. Right? So do you see there's a word in gray in Hebrew top right corner of page 136 in the green book? There's a gray word and then a black word. The gray word? So when you have gray and black, that means one thing is written in the Torah scroll, but when we read it, we don't read what's written in the Torah scroll because it's probably a scribal error. It doesn't make sense. Gimel Yud Yud Mem doesn't mean anything. Probably someone made a Yud, someone made a Vav too short. And the scribe copying that scroll thought it was a Yud, but it should have been a Vav. Because a Yud, a Yud is just a short Vav. Right. Right? Extend a Yud and you get a Vav. Isn't that right, Hanale? <laughs> Extend a Yud and you get a Vav. So probably it, it's a scribal error that should have read goyim. What is goy? What is goy in early Genesis? Early biblical material. What is goy? Nation. Nation. It comes later to mean a nation, not Israel. 
by definition, that means stranger, foreigner, right? So goy means nation. So shnei goyim bevitnech. There are two nations in your belly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. And there will be two peoples that from you, Yifradu will come out, will spread out. Right? Um, and so one tribe will be mightier than the other tribe. The elder Ya'avod Sa'ir will serve the older. I mean the younger. The older will serve the younger. What is absolutely the law of promogenitor in the ancient Near East? Absolute law. Elder wins always. Double portion, more power in the family. Um, absolutely, the the right of pro, uh, promogenitor is absolute in the ancient Near East. Every one of our stories flips it. Every one of them says the younger, right? Every one of them. Joseph is among the youngest. He becomes a vizier of Egypt and saves his family from starvation. And they worship him. I mean, they have to bow to him. And, right? Okay, here, here as well. Asaph is older by a twin timing, like a few minutes. Actually, not even because Jacob's hanging on to his heel. So, um, so, but he comes out first. His head comes out first. And so he has the right of primogenitor, but all of the Genesis narratives flip that. So we, there's a whole theory about that too. We're not going there either. Okay. So, um, the older shall serve the younger. So this is the message that Rivka gets about the twins in her belly. Two peoples are going to come from you. One's going to be mightier than the other, and the the older is going to serve the younger. She, who does she know this from? yud hey vav So the rabbis want to say, this is definitive of everything else that happens, and this is the defense of Rivka for everything else that follows. She's been told by yud hey vav that this is what's supposed to happen. Okay, so this is her defense. So you can't forget this when you read, say the rabbis, the rest of the story. The first came out, Admoni. What is Adom? Red. Admoni. See that? Hanaleh? Admoni. A a ready one. Ready, R-E-D-D-Y. I don't think that's a word. So, ruddy, we might say. Right? So he comes out admoni, ruddy, and he is hairy all over. So they called his name Esav, the rough, like his skin is hairy. And after that came out his brother. And his hand was grabbing onto Ba'ekev. Look at the, look past the bet. I mean, the bet is about onto. Onto what? Ayin kuf vet. Akev. The heel. The ankle of Esav. So the second child comes out with its hand holding onto Esav's Akev. So what do they call him? Yaakov. Right? 
you miss in English that this is how the elephant got its tail. This is how Yaakov got his name. Why is he called Yaakov? Because he was holding onto the Eken of his brother. He's the usurper. Some say. He's already coming for Esau's place. Say some. Right? And uh, Yitzchak was 60 years old um, when uh, they were born. And they grow up. They, go. Okay, do we care about the childhood of the two boys? No! Right? Doesn't matter. Do we hear that they used to play, that did, did, did what they did, arts and crafts, where they went to school? Did they play basketball? Like We don't hear anything. Nobody cares. Torah doesn't care. We're getting cut to the chase. Torah cuts right to the chase. They grow up. And what's what? What is the important? Esav yodea tsaid. Ish sadeh. So he knows how to hunt. He's a, a guy of the field, meaning of the woods, of, of, the, of the outdoors. V'yaakov, here's the disjunctive vav, but Yaakov ishtam was a simple guy. And this is a compliment in Torah, in general. <laughs> you are straightforward. You are simple. You are not complicated, meaning you're not, you know. Neurotic. Neurotic or deceitful <laughs> or whatever. Um, and, and he's Ishtan. He's rather simple. Yoshev Ohalim. One who liked to hang out in the tents. Right? So, Aesop goes out into the field a lot and hunts. Yaakov likes to be at home. You can imagine him curled up in a corner with a book, mm-hmm. right? Or he's coloring. Studying Torah. He's studying Torah, say the rabbis, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, who usually is in the tents? Women. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yaakov's a mama's boy. <laughs> he likes being in the tents with the women. Right? He wants to hang out at home. He's a domestic. All right. So, um, so they are opposites. Right away, we know they are opposites. But Yahav Yitzchak at Esav. So Yitzchak loves Esav because of the game in his mouth. The rabbis have an interesting read of this. Who's his mouth? Who's his here? He loves him because of the game in his mouth. Whose mouth? If you know Hebrew, it, it doesn't say. It just says his. You're talking about his. Who do we assume his his mouth? Could be either. Could be either. But we assume it's Isaac. Yeah. Someone just said because because Isaac wants to eat the meat that he brings. That's why he loves him because he likes steak, right? The rabbis say it's Asaph's mouth. In one interpretation. Well, then what does it mean? If it takes off his mouth, why does he love him for it being in his mouth? But so what does it mean? He has um, a relationship with his older brother that he needs to preserve. So, But we're talking about Yitzchak loving his son for the game in his mouth. Oh, Because he's manly. Ah. So the rabbis suggest, Bert's the star of the day, the rabbis suggest it's Asaph who has game dripping from his mouth. He brings it in, dripping in his mouth, and Yitzchak loves the sight of that. 
his manly, manly son. Why might that, why might that be something Yitzchak loves? And why might he be really drawn to that? He doesn't have that. Ah, Dana's suggesting he doesn't have that. Why might Yitzchak be someone who doesn't have that? He has PTSD. (laughs) From almost being the sacrifice. From almost being game. He was going to be offered on the altar by his father like a ram. Like a sheep. Like a goat. He was game. In the eyes of his father. So he loves the son who can, you know, hunt and bring down an animal and bring it dripping to his bedside and drop it on the floor at his feet. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a very insightful interpretation by the rabbis, right? Of why he might be drawn, not just to the love of steak, but to his son who, who is macho, macho right? Okay. Berifka Ohevet et Yaakov. But Rivka loved Yaakov, which makes some sense. If Yaakov's hanging around the tent, what does she know from Esau? Other than mom, here's a, here's a, you know, a deer you have to prepare. <laughs> right? Like that's what she gets from him. Yaakov, she knows he's hanging around. The rabbis also point out Yitzchak's love for Esau is transactional. He loves him because he brings him nice meat. Right? Rivka just loves Yaakov for Yaakov. Okay. All right. So um, I want to show you a Rashi on verse 22 because it's going to inform a lot of where we're going to go. Let's look at Rashi on verse 22. What does Rashi have to say? But on V since it's not a word we really understand a lot about. You must admit that this verse calls for a Midrashic interpretation, says Rashi since at least unexplained what this struggling was about. And it states that she exclaimed, if it be so, wherefore did I desire this? Which is how he unpacks that weird thing she said, right? Meaning she asked whether this was the normal, more normal course of childbearing, feeling that something extraordinary was happening. Our rabbis explained that the word Vayiko Tetsu has the meaning of running from the word rats, run, la roots, to run. So he looks at Vayitro Tsutsu. What does that mean? It comes from ruts. It comes from to run. How does that help us understand anything? Whenever she passed by the doors of Torah, whenever she passed by the doors of a yeshiva, you have to love the rabbis. (laughs) Don't you have to love this, Midrash? Whenever Rivka passed the doors of a yeshiva, what happened? Yaakov started running to get out of her. Because he wanted to go learn Torah. <laughs> Whenever she went by a pagan temple, Esav started running to try to get out because he's, he was anxious to go idol worship. Right? Um, another explanation is they struggled with one another and quarreled as to how they should divide the two worlds of their uh, and as their inheritance. All right. So what does Rashi already tell us about this word Vayitro Tetsu? So even even if you don't know the meaning of Vayitro Tetsu, let's say we don't know that word at all and we don't know the word run, we don't know anything, and we just get the rest of the sentence translated. You can imagine Yitro Tetsu is not something great. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
otherwise why to me this? And she goes to ask an omen of God. It can't mean Yitro to do something great happening in her, right? So we don't have to know a lot to know something's going on in there. That's like, so from the beginning, the interpretations of that by the rabbis and all the way through the tradition is that they struggled and continued to do so when they became two nations and when they became two brothers, that the, the struggling begins in utero. Now, the younger's going to serve the older. If the younger's going to serve the older and have that be in any way justifiable, you have to, you have to find reasons why. Why is Aesop cut out? Is God a random God like the God of the pagans? God forbid. It can't be. So all the way back to the Talmud, they have to figure out why Aesop's wrong to be the patriarch and why Yaakov is suited to it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It has to be here. So it's all over the Midrashic interpretation. Otherwise, Yerevave is pretty random. The rights of primogenitor say the older, the younger serves the older. If you're going to overturn that, Yodevafe, the Midrashic tradition scrambles to say why this, this happened. Why, how is God being just and fair here? So already this is one of the early ones we, that Rashi comments on because already when she goes by a yeshiva, Yaakov wants to get out. And when she goes by a pagan temple or you could put in a whorehouse, you know, or whatever, Aesop's trying to get out, right? But you have to love the, the rabbinic imagination. Are there yeshivot in biblical Israel? You have to love it. Okay. So, so already there's this, there's this need to demonize Aesop and have Yaakov be the one who, who deserves the patriarchy and to be the patriarch of the family. Um, he then remember tricks his brother out of his birthright. And then tricks him out of the blessing of the firstborn. Two times. He manipulates Esau once with the help of Rivka when he tricks his father who's blind. Okay. So twice Yaakov manipulates Esau to get the prime position in the family once at the urging of his mother. Okay. I know, I know one story where where's the hairy suit. Right. What's the other story? Uh, right here, right after this. Uh, comes in Aesop from hunting and he's about to die. Um, Yaakov was boiling boiled stew. Um, and Aesop comes in from the field, verse 29, and he was exhausted. Ayef. Weary. I don't love this translation. Ayef. He was exhausted. Aesop says to Yaakov, please give me a helping of the red stuff. That red stuff. For I am so exhausted. Therefore, they called his name Edom, the red one. So this is how the Edomites ancestor got his name. So Yaakov is making red lentil stew. And Aesop is afraid he's going to die because he's been hunting and maybe he didn't find anything to eat. The meat has not been prepared yet. right? And so he's he's afraid he's going to die. And Yaakov says, verse 31, sell me your firstborn right here and now. Aesop said, here, I'm on my way to dying, so what good to me is a firstborn right? Right? Like, if I don't eat something, I'm going to die. I'm on the verge. So if I'm going to die, what good is my birthright? So fine, you can have it if you give me that stew. 
right? Okay. So Yaakov says, swear to me. And he swore to him. He gave over the firstborn right. So the rabbis say here, Esau scorned the birthright. Look at Torah. Thus did Esau despise the firstborn right. Verse 34. So the hint is there. The tone is there in Torah. But the rabbis capitalize on that. Esau didn't even care. Yaakov did. Yaakov wants it. Right? And why does Yaakov know to want it? Why does what? Why does Jacob know to want that birthright? I mean, someone put that idea in his head. So that is a very interesting question, Dana. So Rivka, while she's pregnant, gets an omen from Yudhei Buffet. Did she in some way communicate that to her sons? Or her son? She she favored him. So... So has he been told explicitly, you should be the one, he should serve you? Okay. So these, this, this will all, this is all in the realm of Midrash because we don't know. Elena. I just keep thinking that, that this doesn't have to do with, um, firstborn, secondborn, but that God somehow just knew that Jacob would be the proper person to lead the entire Jewish people. Yes. And that's what he based it on. Yes. But you have to have a just God. It's not fair. The rights of promogenitor are absolute in the ancient Near East. So the people that wrote this story, if God is just. We're talking about the entire Jewish people. Then why isn't it Asaph? Because God knew that Jacob was the proper person to lead. It doesn't say that. I know, but God knew it. So the Midrashic tradition agrees with you. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) The Midrashic tradition spends a lot of ink on defining why Yaakov is more fit. We have no evidence of that. We're just told God says, the older will serve the younger. But the rabbis want to say, God knew Yaakov was more fit for the position. But they are the same age, ironically. It's just mm-hmm. one came out first. In I, the ancient Near East, it doesn't matter. The older twin is the firstborn. Period. That is who opens the womb. Whoever pets our rechem, the one that opens the womb is the firstborn. Period. Okay? We're all trying to justify all this. All I'm saying is, so does the Midrashic tradition, because it's not there. It's just not there. Okay? So, the, the, so then we have to start imagining. All right. So, so as early as early Talmud, there's this understanding that Asav is the hairy one, the wild one, the killing animals one, the go-getter, the go-getter <laughs> right? And and Yaakov, that yeshiva bucher. <laughs> right? Who was who's hanging around the tent and holding on to mama's skirts and her apron strings? Right? So early on we have this characterization. What I want to do is so early on we have kind of a demonizing, if you will, of the other and the lifting up of our patriarch who becomes ancestor of the Israelites, right? By the Madrashic truth. Okay. So that's an early instinct. Um to those Edomites, they descend from that wild hairy guy, right? Who kills things for a living, right? We, right, are the gentle, cultured, right, refined people. So that, that's an early instinct and it goes all through the Madrashic tradition. What the, what the Kabbalistic and Hasidic 
traditions based on early sources like the Zohar. What they did, what the mystical tradition did with this, it says, don't think this is a truth about the Edomites and the Israelites only. This is Torah. This is God's revelation of truth to us. Therefore, it must mean more than that. Because Torah is true for all time. It has to mean more than that. So what does it mean? Rivka, don't, don't think of Rivka as a person who lived once upon a time. Of course she did. She's our matriarch, but there's more. Rivka as matriarch, Rivka as the representative of all of us, the people Israel. All of us, each of us. She is pregnant as are each of us with Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara. Within her, is battling, like within each of us, the good inclination and the evil inclination. That is what's always happening within each one of us all the time. This is not only history. This is truth. This is also metaphor. For them, it wasn't either or, right? Yes, there was a Rivka. Yes, she had twins. Yes, they became the Edomites. Yes, we became Israelites. But there's more here. There's also spiritual truth here, and that is that within each one of us, there's the shadow side and the shining light side. So let's look at Rabbi Mark Margolius. Jacob and Esau represent contrasting spiritual archetypes within a single sibling framework. Jacob Ishtam, mild, simple, uncomplicated, the more tender and intellectual aspects of the self. Esav Ishsadeh, a person of the field, physical, the more assertive embodied facets. The pshat, or literal sense of the Torah text, not so implicitly, prioritizes the qualities associated with Jacob. With God early on revealing to Rivka during her pregnancy that Yaakov will prevail over Esau, right? So take a step before Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara. There's our more spiritual intellectual self, and there's our physical, assertive, more animal-natured self. Forget good or bad, absolutely, but there's a preference already in Torah for the Yaakov, simple, emotional, intellectual side of us, okay? Because we're told the older Asaph will serve the younger. And this is revealed by none other than Yodhe Buffet, God's self. Rivka consequently writes favors Yaakov, blah, 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 blah. Okay. We understand the Yetzir Hara as an essential self-protective instinct revealed in our thoughts, emotions, and bodies and elicited by experiences triggering fear, in which case they may be self-protecting or desire in which case they may be, may be self-aggrandizing. While it may at times confuse or enslave us, we do not evade or overpower our Yetzer Hara. On the contrary, the path to a life of greater wholeness runs directly through it. Okay? So Aesop becomes associated in our tradition with the Yetzer Hara, right? Like I just said. Um, so what is the Jewish approach to dealing with the Yetzer Hara? It is not what Christianity did. Christianity, right, says it's, whose fault is it? Yours. Yours. Yeah, but who is it tied to? 
outside of ourselves? Satan. 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 And Satan is always working in here. That is not what the Jewish tradition did. The Jewish tradition says we each have a Yetzer Hara and a Yetzer Hatov. That's just the way it is. And the way to get at the Yetzer Hatov, you have to go through the Yetzer Hara. Right? Right? Thank you, Elena, for that side. Because then you're getting, you're on to what, where, where this is going. Right? Um, this approach follows the rabbinic understanding that our Yetzer Hara is indispensable and even a source of goodness in the world. Because what, what, look at the last line of this part of, uh, of the Midrash. Without the Yetzer Hara, no one would build a house, take a spouse, or beget children. What is that saying? Why is that? That without the Yetzer Hara, nobody would, would build a house, take a spouse, or beget children. You have courage. You have to have courage. That's often associated with Esau. You have to have strength. What else do you have to have? Ambition or something that is sort of self-serving. Ambition about what I want for me. Yeah. That gets put on the category of the Yetzer Hara because that's self-serving. Jealousy. That's selfishness. Right. That's right. What about taking a spouse? Why do you take a spouse when you're 16 in the ancient Near East? To, to procreate. Sex. Sex. <laughs> <laughs> Sex. Right? Without lust, you would never take a spouse. Who would put up with another human being in their space if you didn't lust for that? Right? So, because we're not just not meant to. Yeah. So, so other than lust, why would you take someone into your space and you would never do this crazy thing of begetting children? Because who wants that headache? Right? <laughs> So um, so that's all associated with the Yetzer Hara, but the rabbinic tradition does not demonize those desires. Rather, it says, we need the Yetzer Hara, but we have to channel it. We have to channel our desire. We have to channel our lust. We have to channel our ambition. We have to channel our, our greed, our, our desire to have, um, which I think personally, is an incredibly healthy way to look at human nature. It's You don't otherize those instincts. You direct them, right? Okay. Esau never channeled it. Huh? I want to say Esau never channeled that energy. All of the Esau's in the world are people who don't channel it. They don't bring their, I'm serious about this, Barbarians, those barbar, those are people just like us. What's the difference? Their Yetzer Hatov has not been cultivated to channel the Yetzer Hara in a positive direction. Placing limits on lust, placing limits on greed, right? Okay. They are not fundamentally different from us. Page three. Second paragraph, taking all of these midrashim in this way of understanding stuff, now going to Hasidism, we cannot manifest a midah, a char- like a spiritual characteristic, by seeking only its bright side, Yaakov, and avoiding or repressing our shadow, Esav. Instead, 
We practice meeting our inner Esav with what the Hasidic tradition calls Hitlangdut, curiosity without judgment, and Rachmanis, compassion. When we notice and experience our shadow as a narrowing in our thoughts, feelings, and sensations, we can apply a mindfulness approach known by the acronym RAIN. So when we notice the shadow side, let's say we notice we're getting really agitated and really pissed off. There is a mindfulness practice called RAIN. You recognize that. You accept it. You investigate. Huh. That seems to be some anger coming up, Amy. I wonder what's going on here. I wonder what's triggering you. What do you think is happening here? And the one that I like is non-identification, meaning, okay, you can step back and see that you are angry. Lots of times we say, I'm angry. No, you're not. You're Amy who's experiencing anger. So you take a step back of non-identification rather than I'm so mad. It's okay. There's some anger. Amy, hmm, seems something's pissing you off. Well, let's take a step back and investigate it, right? So a non-identification. Um, and the other one that my teacher taught us, yeah, Elshai taught us, is um, you could also say need. What do I need right now? Right? So something's really making me angry. What do I need? Because often anger is a cover for what? Depression. <laughs> no. Often anger is a cover for another emotion. Fear. 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 We'd rather feel angry than afraid. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true for me. When I get angry, most likely I'm afraid. Right? Because I all the time rather be angry than scared. All the time. Because when I was scared as a kid, that could mean really, really bad things were coming. Okay. And nobody wants to go there. All right. So, rain. By inserting even a little space between ourselves and our fear-based instincts, we can become clear-minded enough to discern the extent of actual threat and extract the spark of holy light trapped within a klipa, a broken shard of creation. Within every broken shard of creation is a spark of the divine. Our job is to liberate that spark. And the way we do it when we get angry is right is to take these steps back to hold it with some curiosity and a lot of compassion and and say is it true are you really threatened is there anything that's really gonna hurt you here and just allow ourselves to not over identify okay so i want to go to i want to i know there's a lot here so i want to move quickly through to uh page four is your is yours color coded yeah. okay great so look to the yellow highlight on page four I, 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 I like got chill bumps when I started reading this. These two inclinations, or sorry, go above that. These two inclinations are actually angels, says the Zohar, an early mystical work of a Jewish tradition. Pure spiritual forces charged with protecting the person from harm. They never leave a person. If one purifies oneself and returns to one's spiritual roots, the Yetzer Hara submits to the Yetzer Tov. And the inclination, inclination to do good rules over the inclination to do bad. Both of them join together by mutual agreement to guard the person from doing bad wherever they go. This is why the verse from Psalms says, 
God will give command of God's angels to you to look after you wherever you go. Meaning God will give you control over the angels of the Yetzir and the Yetzir The angels referred to are the two inclinations. And when one decides to strengthen one's Yetzir HaTov over the Yetzir the Yetzir even against its will, has to say, Amen. As we move through shock and grief after the terrorist attack, I'm going to change the words here. Right of October 7th, we seek wisdom for responding to the growing manifestation of evil in the form of ignorance, hatred, and violence. We are descendants of and identify with Jacob, who later in the Torah will be renamed Israel. But the pain and fear triggered in us by this anti-Semitic terrorism, and I would say by the anti-Semitism we are seeing in America, and violence against vulnerable peoples in general can activate our own shadow, our own internal, internal Asaf. Right? In grief, we may at times feel fury verging on rage, angry thoughts and feelings which can either fuel sacred action or pull us towards confusion, constriction, and violence. Through our tikkun midot practice, we grow more conscious of anger in our thoughts, emotions, and sensations. We befriend our anger without judging it, and we discern wisely how to direct its inner sacred energy towards love, healing, and justice. I was like, are you kidding me right now that this is his commentary on this? Right? I'm like, whoa, okay. Go to page five. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that first paragraph, but I'm um, going to, uh, if so. So she, it's when she tells him he can come back, go because your brother's met so mad at you, he's going to kill you. Um, and then what she says about uh, when he can come back, uh, meaning when your anger towards your brother subsides from you is a midrashic interpretation of what she says to her son, to Yitzhak. I mean, to Yaakov. If so, this passage teaches that witnessing anger, which distorts and obscures the divine image in the face of others can remind us how we too, can become twisted versions of ourselves when we feel pain, fear, and anger in the face of mortal threat and or injustice. Rather than ignore this unavoidable and important capacity within ourselves, we face it courageously and honestly. And then we extract from our fury the energy we need to generate powerful words and actions by which we can repair, bless, and elevate ourselves and others. In this week of Toldot, as we approach the end of Cheshvan, as the days shorten and light grows scarce, may we embrace our whole selves, our inner Esav and our inner Yaakov, searching our shadows honestly and with compassion, discovering within and extracting from them unnoticed reserves of light, hope, and strength by which we can resist and overcome our current day plagues of mass ignorance, hatred, and violence. So may it be the will. Um, I think it's really um, an important teaching right now um, because I'm not, you know, I'm not Pollyanna. You know, that's not who I am, nor is our tradition. We don't put our head in the sand and pretend stuff isn't happening and that it's not there. However, we also don't want to get to a place where only our reactivity, only our reactions, only our own fear and rage in response to what's happening is what determines who we are and how we behave in the world. That is in some ways more dangerous, that we become people and a people we don't want to become in response to what's happening in the world around us. And I'm very concerned 
I'm very afraid that some of that is going to be happening. I'm very afraid that we are going to not be able to tolerate expressions of our own sadness and sorrow at what's happening to Palestinians in Gaza because of our rage and our fear. Um, and I don't ever want us to become a people who doesn't recognize the horror of war for every single person involved, including soldiers. And it just, it's a horror that all of it's horrible. I deeply value that our tradition is one that says we all have the capacity to hate and to, to come to violence. We all have it. And it's, and in reaction to injustice and in reaction, right, to, to violence, um, and radical injustice and horrors that happened on October 7th, we have justifiable rage and anger and fear. Our work is to be sure we channel that in ways that, that hopefully in some way can bring about a different kind of situation in the world. And right now, it might mean violence and destruction on the ground in Gaza. But I hope it also will mean a resolve of rebuilding. So it just, I just, I'm very concerned that we're going to get to a place soon where you can't even say that out loud without being attacked. I'm already seeing it between Jews. And it's very upsetting to me. Um, that, that, that that's where we're headed, um, as a community. So, um, so I, I found this teaching to be, uh, incredibly beautiful. So I want to leave you with, um, I want to leave you with the end of Margolius. He gives us this end of the Amidah at the end of the Amidah in a traditional prayer book, not in the Reconstructionist prayer book, except maybe in one of them, Bert would have to tell him. Um, there's this beautiful, it's from, it's based on the Babylonian Talmud. Um, look at, at prayer practice at the end of your sheet. There's something called prayer practice, page six. Oh. Go to the bottom of page six. Based on the Talmud, uh, Mar, son of Ravina, concluded his recitation of the blessings of the Amidah. It was, this is how late it's, the Siddur is not set. When these conversations are happening in the Talmud, the Siddur is not set. The prayer is not set. The tradition of one guy was to say this at the end of those collection of blessings. My God guard my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceit. To those who curse me, let my soul be silent and may my soul be like dust to all. Open my heart to your Torah. And may my soul pursue, pursue your mitzvot. Save me from a bad mishap, from the yetzer hara, the evil inclination, from a bad person, and from all evils that suddenly come upon the world. And all who plan evil against me swiftly thwart their counsel and frustrate their plans. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart find favor before, before you, Yudhei my rock and my redeemer. Those words you know. You know those words. You've heard them sung a million times in a million different uh, <clears throat> melodies. So, but I want to give you one that I learned in rabbinical school. My colleague, Rabbi Juliet Spitzer, um, wrote her version in Hebrew and in English. Um, but this is hers. Juliet Spitzer, um, Elohim and Zor. Elohim and Zor Usfatai midaber mirma 
Elohim and Sorashani Meira Usvatai Medaber Mirma Vodim Kalanai Nafshi Tidom Venafshi Kafar Lakoti Tahli Bibitora Teha Uva meet for Tehat Yerdof Nafshi. My God, guard my tongue from all evil and my lips from spouting love. May I think before I begin to speak. May my words be gentle and wise. Help me ignore those who wish me ill. Help me be humble before all. Open my heart to your Torah that I know how to answer your call. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.